Friends, let me invite you to open your Bible now to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible, you can use the one in the P-Rack in front of you, or you can use the app on your phone, or you can follow along on the screen as I read. This is from the Ten Commandments, and this is the Exodus 20 version of them. There's also a version in Deuteronomy. And I want you to listen now for the Word of God in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. As summer slips by us and the autumn creeps in, I would like to begin today by exploring one of the great human mysteries of our lives, the electrifying staple of pool parties all across this great land, the chance for big guys and big girls to show off their skill and daring. Of course, I'm talking about the belly flop. Oh, how we love the brave men and women who are willing to sacrifice limb and life to entertain us by making such a creative entrance into the pool. How many of you have ever done a belly flop? On purpose? On accident? Yes, that's where I found the previous two services, as many people on accident as on purpose. So, of course, the the great thing about the uh, great American belly flop is the fantastic smack that it makes when you hit the water, and it takes a brave or maybe a foolish person to do that. Why? Because it hurts. It hurts really bad, doesn't it? See, there's a curious thing about water. When you enter water slowly like a sane, reasonable person and you step down the steps into the pool or even dive in smoothly, the water acts like a liquid and it moves out of your way in plenty of time. But when you enter the water with your whole body all at once, the water acts like a solid And because of things like mass and acceleration and displacement and fluid dynamics and other things that I don't really understand, there is force exerted on the water which exerts force back on you and the result is a smack and it hurts your belly. You enter the water with 20 times more force in a belly flop than you do with a dive. And so the result is resistance. Resistance. And everybody knows that there is resistance when you do a belly flop, and everybody knows that it hurts because of the resistance. But for some reason, we seem to forget that when it comes to time. Now, time is just as much a reality as Newtonian physics. And similarly, when we resist it, there is a similar consequence. When we resist time, when we protest it, when we fight against it, when we try to cram more and more into it, there is resistance. And like a belly flop, it hurts. There's pain associated when we resist the passage of time. You see, no matter how hard we resist, time keeps going. And no matter how much we try, there are only 60 minutes in an hour and only 24 hours in a day. 
So I want to invite you to imagine with me today, uh, instead of resisting time, what if we accepted it? Instead of pushing back or trying to get more of it or do more with it, what if we simply received time as it is, as a gift from God? Can you imagine the difference that would make in your life? Can you imagine the difference that would make in your community and in the world? You see, friends, time flows. Time flows like water. There's rhythm. It's like waves washing up on the beach. There's movement. It's like a river that winds through a forest. Think with me for a moment about the origin of clocks. Uh, some of the earliest clocks, of course, were sundials and uh, and uh, hourglasses, but the first mechanical clocks came about in the popularity in the 1300s in Europe, and they were first used by monks in monasteries. And I wonder if you can guess why monks in the 1300s used clocks. Any guess? To call them to prayer. To call them to prayer. Right? So the clock meant time to slow down, the clock meant time for quiet. The clock meant time to focus on the things of God, to speak to God, to hear from God. The clock was like an arrow pointing the faithful of God toward contentment and toward quiet and toward peace. But what happened since then? Well, humans introduced clocks into all the places where we live and work into factories and into offices and into the classroom and into the bedroom. And they have become the pace setters of our entire lives. And so no longer do clocks call us to restful prayer, do they? What do clocks do? They shout at us, time to get up, time to go to work, time to go to school, time to take your medicine, time to go to the doctor's appointment. Time to run your errands, time for your chores, time for dinner, time for bed. And the first thing you hear the next morning <laughs> is the alarm clock shouting at you that it's time to get up and do it all over again. No wonder we're tired. No wonder we are burnt out. We took something that was designed as a gift and we've turned it into a curse Time is a gift, but it somehow has become a curse. Friends, welcome to the fourth week in our series. It's called Rhythm of Life. And during September, we're talking about these beautiful, life-giving rhythms with which God has ordered the world, with which God has ordered your life and my life. And today, I want to talk with you about the rhythm of work and rest. Work and rest. But I'll be honest, this really is not a sermon about work because you already know how to do that. In fact, most of you work really hard, and some of us in this room work too hard, and we work too much, don't we? Right? And some of you are looking at each other, you're elbowing the person next to you, saying, hey, is that you? Is that me? Yeah, it's a lot of us, isn't it? Friends, the rhythm of life that a lot of us live with is a, an exhausting pattern of drive and achievement sprinkled with a, a, an occasional mind-numbing private escape and we watch Netflix, or we consume some kind of substances. So we don't really need to learn how to work harder. You already know how to work hard. What we need to learn is how to rest. We need to remember how to rest. The most fundamental biblical idea 
of time for rest that we find in this book is what? Do you know? Sabbath. Everybody say Sabbath. Sabbath. The most fundamental biblical idea of time for rest is Sabbath. Sabbath is very simply one day out of seven in which we worship God and rest. The Jewish Sabbath is on what day? Do you know? Saturday. The Jews observe Sabbath on Saturday, the end of the week. Theirs actually begins Friday evening and goes to Saturday evening. And, and the Christian Sabbath is on what day? Sunday. Why Sunday? Because this is the Lord's day, right? Because this is the day of resurrection. And so we took a Jewish practice and we modified it just a little bit. And we said, that's good, but our Sabbath day will be on the day of resurrection. And so Sunday is a good day for Sabbath. Sunday is uh, a day for worship, like we're doing here this morning, and it's a day for rest. Now, let me acknowledge that for some of us, resting on Sunday is difficult because some Christians have to work on Sundays, right? So I'm thinking of nurses, thinking of firefighters and preachers, right? And so if you have to work on Sunday, you're going to have to find another day to have your rest, maybe on Saturday or maybe another day during the week. But either way, the idea of Sabbath is a rhythm in which there are six days of work and one day of rest. The truth is, friends, for centuries, both Jewish people and Christian people have been keeping the Sabbath to the benefit of their souls. And when you and I neglect the Sabbath, we are neglecting our souls. We are neglecting the blessing that is waiting for us if we would only tap into what God has made. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20. Uh, again, this is from the Ten Commandments. And let me, let me make a note that most of you who I know would not dream of violating some of the other Ten Commandments, right? You would not dream of murdering someone, would you? If you would, come talk to me after this. We'll pray for you, Pastor Matt. We'd love to hear from you. But, but see, we wouldn't dream of murdering someone, but for some reason we would pretty easily and readily violate the Sabbath, and yet they're both part of the Ten Commandments, and, and God takes these things really seriously. So let's look at Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, so don't forget, it's important, but not just important, it's holy. This is a set-aside day. This is an important day for the faithful, for our relationship with God. We think of Christmas and Easter as high and holy days, right? Well, the Bible says every Sabbath is a holy day. Verses 9 and 10. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. Okay, so six days are for working. The seventh day is a day of Sabbath to the Lord. Okay, not just for us only, but in our relationship with God. It's a Sabbath to the Lord, and therefore we worship. Therefore, Sabbath day is a good day for prayer and a good day for Bible reading, and a good day for counting all the blessings that God has given us. But Exodus says, not only for you, you are to rest, yes, but you are also to allow others to rest, your children and your servants and even your livestock. Okay, so on the Sabbath, all of creation takes a rest. All of creation takes a rest. I wonder what it would look like in the United States, or, or even just in Lynchburg, I wonder what it would look like in Lynchburg if all the disciples of Jesus rested on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? Okay. Now imagine 
that all of the people of God, none of us made anyone else work on the Sabbath. We didn't cause anyone to work. Not our children or our servants or our livestock. Not the Walmart cashier or the waitress at Golden Corral. Hello? Right? You say, oh, well, we love to go out to eat on, on Sundays, Pastor Brad. You know, yeah, I love to go out to eat too. But it's something to think about, right? That, hey, not only are we not to work, we're not to cause other people to work as well. So, so the one thing we're not to do on Sabbath is work. Uh, for some of us, we grew up with that idea, and it was impressed upon us by our parents or our grandparents. And it got translated into not only are you not allowed to work, but you're really not allowed to do anything. And so the adults would sit around talking and the kids would be bored out of their minds because the rule was nothing on Sabbath. Anybody grew up like that or you had parents or grandparents? Yeah, let me suggest to you that's not the best interpretation of the scripture because Sabbath is not meant to be oppressive. Sabbath is meant to be life-giving. Okay, so if Sabbath comes about in the creation and then if every Sabbath thereafter is a chance for recreation, then maybe there are many good things that we can do. You know what another word for recreation is? Recreation, okay? So maybe Sabbath is for time with your friends and for sports and for exercise. What if Sabbath is time for board games and for having a big meal together, or getting together with your neighbors to relax on the front porch or on the back deck and, and sipping lemonade? You know, Sabbath is a wonderful day for recreation, for recreation and letting God restore us. Reading a book or going fishing with your grandkids or taking a nap. Friends, I take a nap every Sunday. Every, that's my Sabbath practice. When I was a kid, Sunday was a day for riding bikes uh, with my friends. It was a day for playing football in the side yard. Sabbath is a good day for blessing our neighbors, for taking food to the hungry, for visiting the widow for calling on people who need your friendship and your care. Sabbath is a good day for married couples to uh, <clears throat> have intimacy, okay, right? Why? Because, because if this is the day of celebrating God's creation, we can celebrate our partnership in God's creation, right? All right, so let's look at the rationale. Where does this come from? What's the idea? Well, the idea, very simply, friends, is creation. Look at verse 11 with me. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Okay, so the rationale is creation. God made the whole world in six days. The seventh day, God rested. Now, it, it's not simply, um, hey, follow God's example. God rested, you should rest. Yeah, that's part of it. But there's something much deeper here, and the deeper thing is the rhythm with which God has made the world that there is a particular rhythm, and when we observe it and practice it, life is good and beautiful and right, and when we resist it, there's pain, like, like the belly flop, right? So the rhythm of the world is there is work and rest, and there is nighttime and there is daytime, and there is sleeping and there is waking, and that is the way God has intended it. That is the way God has made the world, and the Exodus says the Lord blessed the Sabbath and consecrated. A consecrated means set aside for holiness, set aside for God. So God has set this day aside for God's self and for us. So I want you to imagine in creation, God makes the whole world in six days, and the seventh day, God says to God's self, this is very good. 
And God does not feel the need to go on tweaking and adjusting and improving. Why? Because it's already right. It's already good. I don't need to fix anything, God says. And so I will rest. And God's love for these humans that God has made, it takes the form of what? Time together. Okay, so God's not working on Adam and Eve so much as God is spending time with Adam and Eve. Isn't that an extraordinary idea that the God of the universe would want to spend time with you? And the Bible says that you know, God would walk in the cool of the evening through the garden. And we can imagine God taking a walk with Adam and Eve together. So friends, this is a gift that God has given us. Sabbath keeping does so very much for the people who are willing to practice it, to take the time to observe and to remember the Sabbath. One of the things that Sabbath keeping does for us is it exposes our false assumptions about the rhythm of life. It reveals the absurdity of some of the myths that we have believed. These are myths that keep us working when we should be resting. Okay, so let me share three of them with you this morning. Three myths that keep us working when we should be resting. Number one is this. uh, People need me. Okay, I can't take a break. I can't take a day off because people need me. They're depending on my kids, my grandkids, you know, the people at work, the clients who I provide services for, whatever it is. We tell ourselves, man, I'm important. You know what? You have a role, right? We all have a role. But here's the truth, friends. People need God. Okay, they don't really need us so much as people need God. You know, last night while you and I were sleeping, did you notice the world kept spinning? I contributed nothing to that. You contributed nothing to that. God made it happen. God continues to give creative, sustaining energy into this world. How many of you recognize the name Martin Luther? Anybody recognize the name Martin Luther? I want you to know some things about Martin Luther today. So uh, the Lutheran church is named for him. um, But even more importantly, he is credited with kicking off and starting the Protestant Reformation. All right, so quick church history lesson today. 500 years ago, all of us were Catholic. We were all Roman Catholic. There was a priest by the name of Martin Luther who looked at the church and said, hey, there's some problems here. We've got to reform. We've got to renew and, and revitalize. And so he said, you know, we've got to stop neglecting the Bible. The Bible is the authority for the people of God. And he said, we've got to stop selling indulgences and letting people think they can buy their way into heaven. You can't buy your way into heaven, he said. Salvation is a gift from God. It's by grace through faith. And so he emphasized these, these ideas. And uh, these were the bedrock theological ideas of a movement which became known as the Protestant Church. And it's called Protestant because he was protesting. He was protesting against the flaws of the church of the day. So now we have Anglicans and we have Methodists and we have Baptists and we have Lutherans and we have Mennonites and the list goes on and on. Okay, two things I want you to know about Martin Luther. First, he was a man of prayer. And Luther used to say the more work he had to do in a given day, the more time he would give to prayer on that day because it was so important that he got his work right, he needed to make sure he was right with God first. Secondly, Luther understood the importance of rest. And he was a person who practiced that on a regular basis. Now remember, this is the guy who we credit with starting arguably the greatest movement of the church in the last 1,000 years. He's responsible insofar as any human being is responsible. And this is what he said about the Reformation. Look at this quote from Martin Luther. He said, I only urged, preached, and declared God's word, nothing else. 
And yet while I was asleep, or here's my favorite part, or drinking Wittenberg beer in the garden with my friend, Philip Melanchthon. The Word reformed the church. I did nothing. The Word of God did everything. Okay, remember, this is the guy who we count as starting the Protestant Reformation, as starting this church that we are all a part of. And he said, look, it wasn't me. I was just hanging out with my friends in the garden, drinking beer. God did all of this. People don't need us. They need God. Myth number two. Busyness means maturity. If I'm busy, it must mean I'm important. I'm an adult. I'm grown up. Look at me. I'm managing my life. My calendar's full. Uh, Busyness means maturity. Friends, here's the truth. Busyness might just be spiritual laziness. Whoa. Getting a little personal there, aren't you, Pastor? Take it easy. Busyness, friends, might just be laziness disguised as maturity disguised as importance. You see, we have a full schedule and we become begrudging of the interruptions that happen and we become resentful of the needy people in our lives. And the result is a spiritual haze in which we go from one task to the next to the next, all the while not giving any real attention to our souls. I want to counsel you today. As you and I are out there in the world Saving the world with the grace of Jesus Christ, let us not neglect our souls. God has a good work to do out there in the world. Yes, God also has a good work to do right here in your soul. Do not neglect it, friends. Don't neglect it. Don't let busyness be an excuse to neglect the things of God. Now, here's the good news. God has already given you enough time to do that soul work. God has already given you all the time that you need. It is there for the receiving as grace upon grace, it says in the Gospel of John, for you. Now the trick is this, friends. You have to quit trying so hard. You have to quit working so hard because this kind of soul work that happens is not one through achievement. It's not one and received through hard work. It's actually the opposite. It's received by surrendering by letting go, by saying, okay, God, I'll do your way instead of my way. I know that's counterintuitive and it feels weird and it's hard for us, but it can be done and it must be done if we are going to let God do that work. Six days of work, one day of rest. Third myth is this. I have to earn my keep. Okay, we all grew up, we were taught hard work, right? Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa said, you don't get anything for free in this life. You got to earn your keep. You got to work hard for it. Here's the truth, friends. Life is a gift. Life is a gift from God. You have that on the slide? There it is. Life is a gift. So let me acknowledge this is a complicated idea. This is a complicated idea, and it's not least because you and I live simultaneously in two different worlds, okay? So one world we live in is the United States. We are Americans. We are participants in a capitalist economy as human beings. The other world we live in is the kingdom of God. And that, that means our citizenship is not just in America, but also it's in heaven, right? Now, things work differently in one economy, in the capitalist economy of the United States versus God's economy in the kingdom of God. In the capitalist economy of the United States, yeah, you earn what you have, right? Nobody gives you anything for free. And if you want something, you're expected to get a job and work for it. That's, that's how things work. But over here in God's economy, 
It doesn't work like that. You don't earn what you get from God, do you? It's a gift. So your relationships and your resources and the peace that you have in your heart and your salvation through Jesus Christ, even life itself is a gift. It is not something that we earn. We simply receive it. Friends, Sabbath is a gift. This day of rest is a gift for us. And I want to suggest to you that things would be transformed in your life and in my life if we would agree that it is a gift. Let's go back to the Genesis story for one more minute. God's creating the world. Day one, day two, day three. Okay, God makes human beings on which day of creation? Do you know? Day six, okay? The sixth day God made a man and a woman and put them in the garden. Okay, which means on this day of the, the seventh day, the morning of the seventh day, Adam and Eve awake on their first full day in this life, and they awake to what? A day of work? Earn your keep, Adam and Eve? No. A day of rest. They haven't even had time to earn it, and God says, here you go. This is my gift to you. You don't have to earn it. It's a blessing. It's a gift. This is for you. And so now you have time for rest. Time to take a nap. Time to talk with your loved ones. Time to go for a walk or a bike ride. Time to be. Just be. What are you supposed to do, friends, when you receive a gift? Two things. Say thank you and enjoy it. Amen.